Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am deeply honored to be joined by Thomas Dibdahl. Thanks for talking with all of us today. My pleasure. Well, I'm honored in part because you, uh, your story intersects with Spectrum in interesting ways and then detours into a really rich life of uh, focusing on justice and we're here to talk about uh, your book that's out right now called When Innocence is Not Enough, Hidden Evidence and the Failed Promise of the Brady Rule. So I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's start, though, maybe with you talking about how you first became interested in the ideas and the pursuit of justice. Well, I started at a very early age. Uh, I read a book that actually Pastor Fagel, William Fagel from Faith for Today show, had sent out to my parents who were contributors to the Faith for Today show. And it told the story of a guy who had had a very troubled background, turned to a life of crime, ended up committing a murder and landed on death row in Ohio. His name was Sam Tannehill. But while there in prison, he had met some Adventist laymen who were visiting the prison, signed up for the Faith for Today Bible Correspondence course, and as it happened, became converted, became an Adventist, and asked Elder Fagel to be his pastor, which he agreed. And the wheels of justice or <laughs> injustice turned. Uh, he was uh, executed in 1956 in the, the Ohio electric chair, but went to his death you know, rejoicing in his newfound faith and expecting uh, to certainly be saved forever. And so Elder Fagel told this story in this little booklet called By God's Grace, Sam, which was how he signed his letter. So I was an 11-year-old boy. I read this story, and it was unlike anything I'd, I'd ever read. I had a very protected Adventist childhood <laughs> called Belinda. And this reading about these crimes, he had a whole string of crimes even before oh, the murder. Always was, the best part of those stories. Oh, oh yeah, it was... <laughs> was both horrifying and fascinating to me. I couldn't stop. But in the end, I was deeply troubled because here was this Adventist. He was a Sabbath keeper. You know, <laughs> his sins were forgiven. He was a good man now. Why would they execute him? And that had <laughs> ignited something in me that never went out about crime and justice, how we punish criminals, and what is justice in a very complex uh, world that we live in today? Mm. Well, that's a great story. Uh, and you, I really appreciate your ability to tell stories. You um, have a really important part 
to play in Spectrum's history because you did um, some of the first serious journalistic work for the organization. One of the big stories that you wrote on, we only have a few copies left of this uh, issue of the journal from um, the mid-1970s in which you wrote on the Mary Kay lawsuit with Pacific Press. Can you talk about how you became interested specifically in journalism and how you got involved with Spectrum? Yes, I, I was interested even you know, in high school in writing, um, and I thought about you know, maybe I want to be a writer. I, I did work on the school paper in high school and then in college. I was a theology major, but uh, one year I was editor of the La Sierra uh, College Criterion. So I, I had a little experience, not a lot, and then I actually ended up going to journalism school, but not going into journalism after seminary. So I didn't have a lot of writing experience. And Spectrum was really a wonderful place for me to grow and develop that I had the interest and some some experience in training, but really hadn't done a lot. So uh, with Roy Branson as the editor, and he'd been my teacher at, at Andrews, uh, he invited me to start writing and gave me some assignments. And it was really a great place for me to kind of cut my teeth on some really substantive stories, but stories that that mattered to me also as as a, as an Adventist at that time. So uh, I I really had a chance to do some some good good stories, and uh, I hope that they were helpful to people. But it certainly was a good start, a good foundation for my writing. Yeah, well, I know that they are because I. Um have heard of various folks who have returned to your writing and uh, to use it in classes and, and even in a business context. So those um, profiles and, and focus on ideas has uh, definitely lived on. Can you talk about how you became, made that shift um, to um, the legal profession? Yes, I had, uh, as the story told you, I've always been interested in that issue. But for various reasons, you know, I went to seminary, I was a pastor briefly, uh, and then I actually worked in publishing, but not really much as a writer. Uh, but it was always in the back of my mind to want to be more involved. I, I was like, writing guys on death row and writing some articles about criminal justice and always interested. And then I spent two years as a volunteer with the Mennonite Central Committee uh, in the early 80s uh, down in New Orleans, working on prison and jail conditions, and then with guys on death row. So that really pulled me in even further. And then finally, <laughs> circumstances allowed that uh, my ex-wife and I had started a small business with Dan Farbach was actually one of the old editors of Insight. Uh, and we had some success with that. So I had a little money. I just quit my job and went to law school and graduated at the young age of 51 <laughs> and went on to spend uh, 14 years as a public defender in Philadelphia and in Washington, D.C. 
Hmm. What a so great... I, finally, I finally got there. <laughs> well, along that way, you worked with uh, an incredible human being, Sister Helen Prejean, who wrote, uh, it wrote the foreword for your book. Uh, can you talk about that experience? She's uh, known, of course, for Dead Man Walking and the, the right. show. Um, sure. Well, it just so happened that where... I was living and working in New Orleans, was very close to the St. Thomas Housing Project, one of the uh, sort of most underserved areas of New Orleans. And on the edge of that, just a couple blocks from where I lived, was a place called Hope House, which was run by the Catholic Sisters of St. Joseph with the tutoring and education for mothers and just whatever they could to improve the quality of life for the people in the housing project. And one of those nuns was Sister Helen. And of course she wasn't famous at that time. <laughs> she was just your basic nun, but um, was wonderful. And we had become friends. And then she started writing to a guy on death row and became his spiritual advisor. And that of course, down the road led to dead man walking and her lifelong commitment to particularly ending the death penalty. Uh, but because then we, our work overlapped, we became good friends. We'd go up to the prison together. It's about two and a half hours uh, north of New Orleans. Uh, spent a lot of time together. And uh, I must say, as a, as a Seventh-day Adventist, with the fundamentals of our background about Catholics, it was a revelation to me to find these nuns being... Uh, so ordinary, but also so committed to the gospel, uh, so much fun to be around. Uh, so uh, it was a great to be. So then we've uh, been friends ever since. And uh, I did have a tiny, tiny cameo part in uh, Dead, Dead Man Walking. <laughs> My son and I went up to watch some of the filming and we were sort of extras in there. But uh, Oh, nice. So yeah, she's just a, a, a one. I mean, I, I think with her, what you see is what you get. A person that's just full of life and is uh, unstoppable in her energy to try and end the death penalty. Yeah. We had her come and talk at Pacific Union College a few years ago. It was a really great experience for uh, the campus. Um, let's talk about uh, your book, uh, When Innocence is Not Enough. Uh, you, number one, I really enjoy your storytelling. It's, uh, you know, with Spectrum here, uh, we're involved with lots of um, books that uh, provoke ideas, uh, but the prose can be a challenge, and uh, your writing is, is really fun to read. So thank you for... Uh, being a great storyteller, um, because that's, I think, uh, an art that um, we need more of in this world. Um, what, how did you come about deciding that you were going to uh, tackle uh, this topic and with this book and with the really interesting vignettes that you include? Well, the, as you might imagine, it was sort of an evolving process that as I was nearing my time as a public defender, I was getting more and more tired. It's a very wonderful, the most exciting and best job I ever had, but it's very demanding. So 
I started thinking about retirement, what I might do. And I said, well, I'd, I'd really like to get a good writing project. So I talked to some of my friends and said, you know, any good cases to write about? And uh, one of my dear friends said, Catherine Fuller murder case. You need to learn about that. And uh, I'd never heard of it at that time. Uh, it was a 1984 homicide in D.C., uh, horrific crime. The local police called it probably the most savage and senseless killing in D.C. history. So uh, I went to the the Post had a summary article that a reporter had written some years after the case, kind of looking back on it. So I read that and it uh, it just got a hold of me. It's kind of, you know, <laughs> the sirens called me and I just veered into the rocks and have been there ever since. So uh, when I retired, particularly, I started diving into this case and it was just rich. There was this terrible murder, a middle-aged black woman, a very small woman, was basically kicked and beaten to death and sodomized with a pipe for 40 bucks and her cheap jewelry. Uh, it was just beyond the pale in terms of uh, what had happened. And the police arrested 17 young people, claimed they were all part of a gang and that this had been this ugly gang attack. That's how it got just so incredibly vicious and, and evil, really. And uh, 12 of them were indicted and eventually 10 went to trial. But the other side of it was there was virtually no evidence of a gang attack. And all these guys said they were innocent. But as things go, because the government had this powerful story and ended up coercing confessions from two not particularly bright teenagers, they were able to convict eight of these men and they went to prison for life all the while maintaining their innocence. So as I got into the case, uh, it seemed to me that absolutely everything about the government's theory was wrong. It was a powerful theory. This, this poor little woman walking home from the store, just set upon by these guys, they, call, they referred to them as piranhas or sharks on a feeding frenzy, subhuman, uh, this horrific beating and death. And uh, that was what everyone believed. And that won the day. So these guys went to prison and uh, would have, uh, the case would have stayed like that forever, except then this 10 years later, a Washington Post reporter who had been slightly involved in the case, convinced her editors that she should take a look back at this from 10 years on. It had been so notable and such big news in the city. So she did and was equally convinced that these guys were innocent. Uh, she couldn't convince her editors at the Post, and so they really watered down her story. But that got the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project interested in the case. And just kind of to summarize, they did get back in court. The case went all the way back to the Supreme Court in 2017, which was now 32 years after the original trial. But sadly, in a split decision, the court ruled against them. Their conviction stood. 
uh, and that's where we are. Uh, they were released from prison only because they timed out uh, almost all of them just in the last two or three years, uh, all the while maintaining their innocence. Hmm. You know, that's just one of many stories you tell. You kick off the book with this great chapter, Love, Death, and the Birth of Brady. We're going to talk about the the Brady rule here in a second, and I'll just read John Leo Brady was in love. In early June 1958, he was also in some trouble. His sweetheart, Nancy Boblet McGowan, had just told him she was pregnant with his baby. Nancy was only 19 and was married to another man. Brady was 25 and was broke. And then you go on from there to tell a story of Brady. Uh, talk about the Brady rule and what it means for uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys. The Brady rule uh, had great promise. It was intended to make trials fairer. And what it said was in a criminal case, a prosecutor is required to turn over any favorable information that he or she uncovers to the defense. I mean, the, the point is obvious. Uh, even if, if the prosecutor say is pursuing suspect a and believes this is the the person if if some evidence comes to the fore that says oh that this person might be innocent and it might be someone else that information should be shared uh, again simply to uh be sure that justice is the goal and and what happens so that's that sounds great but you can understand that prosecutors were never fond of that rule because basically what it said is in the middle of a criminal case, you know, you're trying to convict the person you thought did it. And then you're supposed to help your opponent by maybe giving them some information <laughs> that <laughs> undermines your case. Uh, so it, it's never been popular. Uh, but what has happened, probably more to the point, is that the court rather than keeping it simple and enforcing the rule, uh, turned it into one of the most complex rules uh, be available. Because what they say is for a Brady violation, there has to be three things. There had to be favorable information, it had to be hidden, and it had to be material to guilt or punishment. Now, the first two are simple. The information was favorable, it was hidden, okay. But what does material mean? Well, it's up to the courts. And after many struggles and being unable to define it, they came up with a result-oriented sort of uh, explanation. It's not really a definition, but they said evidence is material if there is a reasonable probability it would have affected the outcome of the trial. So you don't have to be a lawyer to see how kind of slippery that is. A reasonable probability of something. Uh, essentially, a court could could rule either way on virtually any set of facts. You could just say, well, in my opinion, there is a reasonable probability or there isn't. So what has happened because the courts love finality above all <laughs> and hate to disturb a settled decision, particularly one that might be years or decades old, because judges are often 
ex-prosecutors and understand the difficulty of prosecution. What happens literally 85% of the time with a Brady issue is that the court will say, well, yes, that information was favorable. It was hidden. It should have been disclosed. Prosecutor, you shouldn't have done that. But we can't really say it would have changed the outcome. So in the end, no harm, no foul. Mm. And because that happens over and over, prosecutors are like, yeah, might as well give it a shot. If they have some evidence, think if I turn this over, uh, it could ruin my case. So I won't. And later on, if I do get caught, uh, which also probably doesn't happen that much because it stays hidden, even if I do get caught, uh, I, nothing will probably happen to me, and I'll got my conviction. And at worst, I'll lose a conviction that I probably would have lost in the beginning if I handed it over. So there's virtually no incentive to do it. And in the <clears throat> the Fuller case in particular, excuse me, <clears throat> the prosecutor hid evidence of a highly plausible alternate suspect who uh, lived very near where the body was found, who was seen running from the garage where her body was as the police came by three independent witnesses, who, by the way, none of them had seen a single one of the defendants anywhere around that day. But this guy was running away, holding something under his coat, and the object that was used to sodomize Ms. Fuller was never found. Uh, he also had a violent background already. So it was uh, all these factors. He was a highly plausible suspect. But the government was getting close to trial. They said we were, uh, they had arrested these 17 people. It was a gang attack. We'd solved it. The case is going to be over. Suddenly they have this suspect who was a loner, who didn't know any of these other guys. If he was guilty, they were innocent. If he was guilty, their whole theory was out the window and talk about, you know, it had been front page news for for months. Everybody was talking about it to say, oh, whoops, we're totally wrong. I mean, (laughs) couldn't do it. So let's hide this. And if it hadn't been for this post reporter, it would have stayed hidden forever, probably. Wow. You you write there in your foreword, um, the effects of this uh, pattern have been dire withholding favorable evidence is now the leading cause of wrongful convictions of 2,400 documented exonerations between 1989 and 2019 Brady violations helped to convict 44% 1,056 innocent people. These infractions also fell most heavily on people of color. You're really raising a, a, incredibly important issue here. What's the response been to uh, the story you're telling and the cause that you're um, drawing people's attention to? It's probably been predictable. Obviously, I think a lot of people have told me that they've been really moved. I mean, I think people do care deeply about injustice. And when they see that an injustice, particularly one of this magnitude, has been done, 
they want to do something about it. So I'm I'm hopeful. I, I don't want to have some grandiose ideas, but I'm hopeful that if more people learn about this and are concerned, because there there are changes that we can make. And it's easy sometimes to get lost in the legal arguments uh, and forget that every Brady decision is about someone's life. Uh, it affects someone's future. And in this case, the prosecutor's deliberate withholding of this evidence led these eight men to spend a total of 255 years in prison. I mean, just the the suffering and the difficulty is unimaginable. And those statistics are very significant, but obviously those are the Brady violations that we know about. Uh, No one knows how many remain hidden. I mean, it could be for every one we know about, is there one or two or five? I I don't know, but it's a huge uh, blight on our system, a huge cause of destruction and death for many lives. But I might say on the other side, there still are these, there, there still are people who insist that these guys were guilty. And unfortunately, the court in the end, uh, the Supreme Court said what so many other courts say about Brady, that there was Brady evidence that should have been disclosed, that it was favorable to the defense, But we can't say, looking back 32 years, that it would have changed the outcome. But it's interesting, there were two dissents. Uh, It was a six to two vote. It was during that period where there were only eight members of the Supreme Court uh, that Justice Kagan wrote a dissenting opinion with Justice Ginsburg, arguing that this evidence would absolutely have made a difference in the outcome. And what's interesting is that it just illustrates the problem with Brady. Six of the judges thought there wasn't a reasonable probability, but two thought there was. And one thing Justice Kagan said is if you're giving this evidence to a jury, it only takes one juror to hang a a case. You know, you've got to be unanimous. So if even one juror out of 12 had thought, yeah, this, this is significant. Um, it would have made a difference. And one of the last points to make about the case is that people in the community hearing only this gang story, you know, just assumed all these guys were guilty. And they thought the jury would be out for like seven minutes when in fact they deliberated seven full days before they reached any verdicts and nine days before they uh, finished finished the job. And later they said, we were looking for an option. The the government's evidence was basically the confessions of two snitches who traded their stories for leniency for themselves. And they were very troubled by that, but they had no other story. And uh, in the end, they convicted. And uh, the result is, is what we, <laughs> what we ended up with these, these convictions that that I I think were absolutely uh, wrong. Yeah. Well, I know you're just early in the book's release here. I have heard great reports of the events that you've done uh, at bookstores, including one of my favorite bookstores in the D.C. area, Politics and Prose. 
Um, what have those been like for you to be at? Well, it's, it, to be honest, it's been like a dream. Um, I took a very long time to write this book. And when I started, uh, I didn't know if I could finish the book. And then when I had a book, more or less, um, I had a real struggle finding a publisher. Um, you know, a 75-year-old first-time author is not exactly the dream <laughs> client. So uh, that part was a struggle. And, you know, I dreamed that it, it would be done and published and I could talk about it, but I didn't know if that would ever happen. So it's been really wonderful. And partly because this subject, both the case itself, the Catherine Fuller murder and uh, the Brady issue have been something that's on my heart. So to have the chance to talk about it has been great. And uh, the politics and prose event was was almost magical for me that because uh, I lived in D.C. there, a lot of my friends came and there was a wonderful crowd at the bookstore, I guess, somewhere between 200 and 250 people. But what really was the crowning achievement is all of the the six of the eight men who were convicted are still living. One died in prison of an aneurysm. And unfortunately, one died just four months ago from some heart issues. But the other six were there. So after kind of telling the story to people, to introduce them and hear from them, it was just emotional for everyone. And I think probably at least half of the people there were <laughs> shedding some tears and something I've forgotten um, how meaningful the story can be because I've lived with it for so long. But just to hear them speak and to realize that they had survived and with with some real dignity and and strength they were just ordinary guys they weren't saints they had most of them had minor criminal records i mean nothing really significant but you know they were mostly teenagers from a black neighborhood in northeast dc but they always maintained their integrity and they were offered you know in the beginning plea deals say well uh some of them as short as, as two to six years, uh, but they would have had to say they did the crime and uh, they didn't. So they they believed that innocence would save them, but mm. it didn't. And then even for parole, you know, we have this <laughs> terrible system is that if you want to be paroled, you have to be rehabilitated. And part of that is taking responsibility for what you've done. So if you're convicted, uh, and you admit your crimes, then you're rehabilitated. But if you insist you're innocent, then you're not. It's sort of like, if you say you're a killer, we'll parole you. <laughs> but if you say you're not a killer, you're dangerous. Uh, you're, you're, you're not. So, I mean, that's the, the situation they were in. They could have been released years or even decades earlier if they had said they did it, but they never traded their integrity for their freedom. And it's a it's a great uh, tribute to the strength and character of the men of, of what they did. And I, I honor that. Well, thank you um, for sharing that. Uh, just a side note, we will have an excerpt of the book uh, published by the great new press. Um, 
They gave us permission, so it will be in the upcoming issue of the journal with a 5,000-word uh, sort of uh, biographical narrative about your life uh, written by um, Jonathan Butler So, and a review of the book. So looking forward, if uh, folks get a chance to read that, to hear uh, folks' responses. I think my final question to you is because of your awareness of sort of the concerns and the, the evolution in the kind of Adventist community, uh, when you're thinking about these really important issues of justice within the body politic, what, what, what ways can Adventists who are struggling with making their religious tradition apply to the world in meaningful ways, what, what injustice, and by that I mean injustice, uh, can we find um, a sense of, of hope or meaning um, as spiritual beings? Well, uh, I, I wish I had a, a simple answer, but I, I do think absolutely that we have always believed that we want to follow Jesus' example, and we want to care for both the spiritual and the physical welfare of people. And in our prisons and jails now, not only are people serving, uh, far too many people serving long, long sentences, decades, life, life without parole, they're doing it in conditions that are just deplorable. And I think if there is a hallmark of our jails and prisons, it is that they uh, totally devalue the worth and the possibilities of human life. And I think we have a message that everyone can be redeemed. And I think to take that in, to visit prisoners uh, and prisons, to show these people that we believe that they are human beings, <laughs> that they are God's children, that they are our brothers and sisters, that it's not us and them, but it's it's us only. And we all are in need of grace, and we all can be transformed by grace. And then I think if you start visiting prisons, you'll see ways, or, or even reading about them, you know, there'll be ways to get further involved in terms of education, uh, in terms of helping people coming out of prison, uh, and in terms of even raising issues about, is it really serving our safety to just lock these people away for 40, 50, 60 years? Um, and how do we ever expect them to come out as normal human beings uh, capable of functioning? And so basically, what can we do as Christians to care about these people as our fellow human beings and do whatever we can to make their lives better. Well, thank you uh, for that. It's a, it's a profound call for us rooted in our faith. Thanks for uh, talking with all of us today. I really appreciated hearing uh, you talk about um, these ideas, and I really appreciate the, your legacy of, of uh caring about justice through your many career transitions. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. It's all, always a delight to talk about this. As you can see, I, 
uh, I'm happy to talk anywhere on this subject. And uh, thank you for uh, helping to promote my book. Uh, I just hope people read it and I hope it uh, affects them. And that I hope they'll maybe want to get involved in, in solving some of these problems. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I do, Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget.